0: Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions brought in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. I couldn't be uh, more excited about today's episode. I'm joined by a veteran hedge fund manager with deep roots in both traditional and digital assets, Matthew Edwards, CEO and CIO of Dalpha Capital. Dalpha Capital is a Texas-based asset manager, and Matthew is gearing up to launch a cryptocurrency focused fund of funds. Uh, With that said, Matthew, it's great to have you on.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you, sir, for having me.
0: And so you have a uh, a really, I guess, extensive background in in traditional finance. You know, uh, you lived in Hong Kong. Uh, I I also did, by the way, so grew up there. Oh, cool. Uh, Chicago, Tokyo, Dallas. You worked at, you know, uh, Grosvenor, uh, which is a, you know, 50 plus billion uh, dollar asset manager. Um, you know, and, uh, you headed up, uh, a hedge fund launch in Hong Kong, you were the CEO of DigiNex. So, you know, without going into, you know, without me going into your full history, you know, can you kind of give us a background about yourself and, you know, you know, what led you up to, 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 to starting, you know, Delta Capital? Sure.
1: Uh, really interesting to, to learn that you grew up in Hong Kong. Um, we'll have to catch up on that under separate cover. And so, yeah, just quick background on, on me. I, I grew up in the traditional hedge fund space. I spent the formative part of my career, as you mentioned, uh, at Grosvenor Capital Management. Grosvenor is one of the oldest uh, fund of hedge funds in the world. Uh, in fact, I think it's maybe the second oldest, if, if memory serves. It's certainly the oldest U.S.-based fund of hedge funds started back in 1971 by Dick Eldon. Who is uh, kind of known as the godfather of fund-to-fund investing? Um, I joined Grosvenor in 2001 when we were about two and a half billion or so in, in total AUM, and actually got to work directly with uh, with Dick as his analyst um, for the first uh, couple of years. So I got a really interesting opportunity to kind of learn the business um, from uh, someone who uh, obviously was a pioneer in that space. Uh, so that was a great opportunity for me and. Ended up uh, kind of graduating through the ranks, um, becoming a full-fledged member of the manager research team, and was lucky enough to be afforded the opportunity to uh, move out to Asia. Uh, as a kid from Garland, Texas, I was pretty excited at the prospect of, of doing that. Um, Grosvenor had a very substantial Japanese client business um, and also had uh, begun allocating to the region uh, sp- more specifically, Japan-focused uh, hedge funds, and so I got to go out there and serve as a bridge between the investment team in Chicago and our and our colleagues in Japan and our clients there, and kind of use Tokyo as a springboard to bounce around the region and look for interesting investment opportunities for us. Um, I then uh, ended up opening the Hong Kong office for Grovner in in, uh, in January 2013, and uh, at that point I was our Asia strategy head, and I was also one of Four portfolio managers globally within the firm. So over the course of my my 13 years or so uh, at Grosvenor, I, I, I helped lead the due diligence on a couple dozen hedge funds that uh, resulted in the deployment of a few billion dollars. I also managed a number of multi-manager, multi-strategy portfolios to the tune of, of several billion dollars as well on behalf of, of large institutional clients. Uh, so I left Grosvenor in, uh, in 2014 at that point, we were about 50 billion or so in, in total AUM. So it was a wonderful ride. Got to learn quite a lot about the business, um, and obviously made some great friendships as well. So a great training ground for me. I ended up, uh, helping the former co-head of Asia macro trading at Goldman, uh, launch a hedge fund in Hong Kong. Um, it was a global macro fund focused mostly on FX and rates. And, uh, my CIO was, um, I suppose, a Protégé of sorts of Mike Novogratz, um, kind of grew up on the desk that Novo started for Goldman in Tokyo back in the day. So, um, kind of the next in, in line of a long sort of lineage of uh, successful macro traders that came off that desk. Um, and we started a fund called Guard Capital Management in August of, of 2014. Uh, launched with just shy of 50 million, we ended up uh, raising over a billion dollars in a short 12 months with no strategic, no anchor, no seed. So, uh, a very successful. Uh, very successful kind of new fund launch there. It was a great opportunity to to kind of see how the sausage was made and, and be on the other side of the table uh, and work with some great uh, individuals and, and and really macro thinkers. So we ran that for about three years. We ended up returning capital, not because we blew up or anything, but more because um, my CIO just wasn't really seeing enough in the way of opportunity to, to deliver the types of returns mm-hmm. he wanted to for investors. And so we returned capital, um, and at that stage, I had spent, you know, the better part of 17, 18 years in, in hedge funds, and, you know, I had grown kind of increasingly disenchanted with the notion of sustainable alpha uh, in in traditional liquid markets. Um, and so I uh, ended up just kind of leaving the space altogether and, and did, uh, sort of dabbled a little bit in, in consultancy, and it was around that time that I got introduced to crypto through a friend of mine um, who had been in my ear for quite some time to kind of, uh, give it a look and finally got around to doing so. And, you know, I'm certainly not a technologist by any stretch. Um, but what really kind of stood out to me, uh, was the, uh, the inefficiencies on offer. And, um, and that's, that really kind of stuck in my mind. Um, and I began to kind of peel the onion a little bit more, Ended up meeting the guys at at Diginex who were, you know, a collection of ex-bankers, ex edgies, ex-traders that were uh, implementing a rather ambitious business plan, uh, all designed to kind of build the infrastructure required to facilitate the institutionalization of this new asset class. Uh, And that kind of resonated with me, given my institutional background and and newfound interest in the space. So I joined Diginex, uh, was helping them with a number of strategic issues initially, but ended up taking over their asset management business um, and uh, and was uh, appointed the CEO of Digi- uh, Diginex Asset Management, um, which became the first uh, SFC-registered uh, asset management company focused on digital assets. Uh, so that was a, a really interesting opportunity. Got to learn quite a lot about the business and the hedge fund landscape in this new space uh, and ended up eventually deciding you know, why build a startup within a startup when I can go build that Startup on my own, which is uh, which is, I guess, a long-winded way of getting to the point of uh, Dalpha and and what we're trying to do here, which is uh, stated rather ambitiously, kind of similar to what my old firm Grosvenor did for traditional hedge funds, which is to provide sort of an institutional on-ramp into a space that can be a little bit a little bit scary, a little bit difficult to to understand uh, and navigate, but uh, but nonetheless offers some pretty compelling risk-return profiles,
0: and so. Uh, You know, one of the interesting things that you mentioned is just the inefficiencies in the market, right? And, and, you know, that crypto interested you because of those inefficiencies. And so... You know, when looking to you know when looking to start a funds of a fund of funds, you probably had in the back of your head, you know, also with your experience with Diginex, you know, kind of different inefficiencies that you were, you were looking to exploit. Or when you're allocating to different funds, you know, different inefficiency that that those funds could exploit. And so, can you kind of give us a background on on that and what you're speaking to specifically? Is it things like, you know, you know, spot futures, arb? Is it you know more quantitative strategies? Is it you know, like 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 where where do, where does where is your interest at least initially, or where did your interest at least initially you know lie in terms of exploiting inefficiencies in the market?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, you know i would I would s- maybe start a little bit at a, at a high level, right, which is um, you know kind of the realization that we are being presented with really kind of the birthing of an entirely new asset class. you know that that in and of itself is a rather monumental development, right? I mean, that does. That just doesn't really happen in most investment careers, uh, but it's happened here. And almost by default, as one would expect, uh, given the nascency of this asset class, it is, um, it is going to be uh, really kind of rife with, with inefficiencies. And those inefficiencies derive, I think, from a number of things. But you know, perhaps the, the, the most obvious one is that you have an incredibly fragmented uh, market microstructure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all these different trading venues across different jurisdictions subject to different regulatory regimes and, you know, different instruments trading across these different venues uh, and also, you know, a burgeoning kind of derivatives complex um, introducing all different types of new instruments by the day. Um, So a lot of this you can imagine is going to, you know, create some pretty interesting pockets of inefficiency for folks to exploit. You know, I think the other thing at a high level that really kind of informs part of this calculus is the fact that this, unlike the traditional markets, you know, this is a market that's dominated by by retail practitioners, right? So there, there isn't a lot yet in the way of kind of sophisticated trading competition, right? Um, of course, there are outfits out there that are engaged in some form or fashion. But for the most part, it really pales in comparison to what you see in traditional markets which are really dominated right by institutional investors Um, and so i think those two at a high level probably inform the nature of the inefficiencies that are on offer and and you're right you know you listed some of the um some of the the more trading oriented strategies right so the quants uh and the algorithmic traders we think um are, are pretty interesting arbitrage broadly defined which obviously you know, changes uh, in the shape of those opportunities uh, over time, just as they've done in, in traditional markets. And also, you know, there is, we think, an emerging kind of use case for fundamental oriented strategies. You know, I think, you know, philosophically speaking, we, we really view uh, speculation as the primary use case here. Um, we don't think this is a market yet for investors per se. We think it's more of a, a market for traders um, because of the lack of, I guess, apropos <laughs> the, the name of your podcast, you know, fundamental value we think is, is for the most part absent so far, but we are seeing, I think I- an emergence there where, uh, some folks we think are doing a pretty good job of articulating a thesis around real value add and the fundamental oriented strategies, right? So you'll pick up a little bit more directionality there. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we think about the world. We kind of break it up into those three buckets, the, the trading bucket, the ARB bucket, and then the fundamental bucket. Uh, but the vast majority of our exposure, we expect to be comprised more of the trading and the ARB strategies.
0: Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And, and I'm with you, right? You know, we call it the Fundamental Value Podcast. is a joke because there really are no fundamentals yet. <laughs> um yeah. Right. You know, and, and trying to, trying to figure out, you know, we bring on every, you know, a, a lot of our guests are hedge fund managers and analysts and researchers and CEOs of, you know, exchanges. And, you know, I always ask people what fundamentals are and nobody ever has an answer, which to me means, you know, <laughs> there really aren't any fundamentals yet, you know, and, and we'll go into that, in, you know, in a bit, but like, you know, you know, other than community, right. And, and supply and demand at the end of the day. Right. You know, kind yep. of a few more, just, just basic ideas. Uh, but yeah, I'm, look, I'm totally, you know, on 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 board with you know the the same idea of you know trading, uh, and you know more quantitative strategies seem to have have the largest you know the larger opportunities. So when you're when you're looking at a, a fund, what are you benchmarking them against, right? When, when you're deciding whether to allocate to a fund, are you benchmarking their performance against Bitcoin? Uh, is does the benchmark depend on the fund or like? And, and what is your benchmark as a fund to funds?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a that's an excellent question because it happens to be really one of my favorite questions um, in these due diligence sessions with with these managers and one of the things that I've that I've noticed um, is that a lot of folks have a have a difficult time kind of managing expectations right and in in my estimation that should be table stakes for any asset management business which is, to answer the question around what is it that we're seeking to achieve by way of risk return? And frankly, why are investors going along for this ride? So that's that's an incredibly important question, and I think it's obviously critical to the analysis of anyone who's looking to allocate to these funds, but it's also important for these funds themselves to kind of have, you know, exhibit some degree of introspection and answer that question for themselves, right, Um, to understand what constitutes success or failure. Uh, so, so we spent a lot of time on this, um, both at our level as well as the underlying fund level. What I would say is we don't really think about returns or risk return rather, um, vis-a-vis a benchmark. Um, we, what we really like about this space is it has the potential, uh, to deliver on the original promise of hedge funds, which was back in the day, it used to be designed to maximize absolute as well as risk-adjusted returns in uncorrelated fashion, right? And hedge funds used to do that. Uh, there was a period in time when uh, they did that very well, and they could therefore justify their, their rather rich fee structures. Now, of course, those uh, return expectations have been reduced effectively to LIBOR plus post the, the financial crisis. And you've seen fee compression on the back of that, right? So the value add isn't quite what it used to be uh, in the traditional hedge fund space. But in this space... Uh, you you see managers and strategies that are actually capable of delivering on that original promise, and so that's how we think about it, right? We think about it in sort of an old school hedge fund mindset, which is these are absolute return strategies; these are not relative return strategies. We do not, in 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 terms of our own objectives, we don't seek to outperform uh, any, any benchmark or or outperform Bitcoin or however people like to think about it. And frankly, we don't like to hear our managers. Uh, talk about that as well. Um, you know, we like to hear look we're targeting you know, call it 20-25% annualized net rate of return over a cycle uh, with this sort of volatility. Um, we can talk about the different ways people should be thinking about risk adjusted returns in the context of volatility, but you know, that's what we're interested in and uh, understanding, you know, how those strategies we expect to perform in different market environments and how they can kind of complement our existing exposures and 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 kind of help with the shape of the overall portfolio that's that's really what we're focused on you know we don't we don't like the idea of of benchmarking at all
0: and so you know funds of funds have you know fallen out of favor in traditional assets a bit and, and they also really aren't that much of a thing within crypto. I mean, you know, you look at the crypto fund to fund landscape and I mean, you probably have a better sense than I do, but I have to imagine that, you know, the combined AUM of crypto fund to funds has to be, you know, in the low, very low hundreds of millions. Um, and, and so why, why did you kind of decide to go that route?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fair question. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think in the traditional hedge fund space, fund of funds has become a little bit of a a, a bad word, <laughs> and you know, the 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 reason for that is, you know, as, as I alluded to earlier, the uh, the outcomes on offer within the traditional hedge fund space have have disappointed, right, uh, over the better part of the past decade or so. And so you can, you can imagine that those businesses built around allocating to those funds who on balance are themselves underperforming, you know, will therefore underperform and it's magnified of course, um, or exacerbated by the fact that you've got the additional layer of fees, right? So your net net returns to your investors have been, uh, I think on balance disappointing. And so there's certainly a performance element here, which I think is informed, the uh, the distaste for fund to funds broadly defined and i think also you know as hedge funds have become a little bit more household a little bit more just commonly recognized and accessible a lot of these institutional investors have developed their own in-house capabilities right to go out and and get the exposure that they want to you know they can they can, Harvard can call up Citadel and uh, get that access directly pretty easily, right? They don't need a, a Blackstone or someone else to help them get that exposure. And so I think that's that's kind of informed a, a little bit of, of, again, the fall off, I suppose, or um, uh, w- within the fund of fund space. But, you know, there was a point in time when fund of funds added significant value, right? And they performed a great service to really the hedge fund industry broadly defined, but certainly for investors that were seeking access and exposure to the space, right? And that would have been in the early days of of of, of hedge funds and kind of when things began to, to kind of institutionalize, right? So, you know, traditional hedge funds used to be kind of a backwater. Um, and it really wasn't until uh, Dave Swenson at, at, at Yale kind of decided to make that first allocation to Tom Steyer at Farallon back in 1988, when institutions, you know, finally kind of you know, sat up and took notice and said, look, this could be this could be an interesting space for us to gain some differentiated exposure. And it was really in the mid-90s when, when some of the Japanese financial institutions wrote very large checks to Grosvenor um, to say, look, this is a really compelling risk return profile. We don't know much about the space. Uh, it's a little bit scary because it's opaque. You know, there's some complexity associated with the underlying strategies. There's volatility and return outcomes there's regulatory uncertainty there's operational deficiencies and so forth but we're going to hire someone who's an expert who can go out there and help us navigate this space and build us a portfolio designed to uh, again provide that differentiated source of risk return and fund of funds you know had there was sort of that golden period right where it was the obvious first place to start as you attempted to access this this new space and i see history rhyming quite a bit right within the uh, Within the digital asset space, you know all of those things that I use to characterize traditional hedge funds in those early days, you know certainly apply to to crypto hedge funds, but probably even more so, right? Just given the the nascency of the asset class and so forth. So I I see the fund to fund vehicle um, serving as a great delivery mechanism and and frankly a great on ramp into this space to be able to uh, you know solve for things around. You know, volatility and, uh, and, and just kind of uncertainty and the complexity, it doesn't require much in the way of technical proficiency to kind of understand what it is that folks like us are doing, right? It's, if you're accustomed to investing in hedge funds, then we're speaking the same language, right? Um, this is just another asset class to trade. And I think once people kind of realize that, they'll understand that this sort of access point is something that could make sense for them.
0: And so when deciding whether or not to allocate to a particular fund you know you mentioned benchmarking and risk return but but what are some of the traits that you're looking for you know how do you do due diligence on a fund yeah. um you know especially in an asset class where you know these fund managers have have very small track records i mean we're we're a data company right and you know we have 3 years of out of sample data in crypto which is which is a lot and i mean most crypto funds or a lot of them don't even have 3 years of performance data right and and the market cycle that we're seeing now is probably very different than the market cycle which they were investing in even if it's an older fund back in 2016 2017 right so how do you kind of contextualize all that you know, what are you looking for? What are, you know, potential red flags? I mean, I guess that's like seven questions in one, but, <laughs> but really, yeah. you know, you know, you, you sit down, you meet with a fund. What are the first three questions that you ask?
1: Yeah, look, you know, it's, um, it's hard to generalize on the first three questions, right? Because I tend to be a, a little bit all over the place um, in terms of where my focus is. But, um, you know, I I would say, we're looking for a few things. Um, and so I'll, I'll try to address your, your questions in multiple parts, but the due diligence that we're conducting is for the most part, exactly the same due diligence that I conducted at Grosvenor. Right. Um, and, uh, both on the investment due diligence side, as well as the operational due diligence side. So we're bringing what we believe qualifies as institutional best practice, you know, from that old world into this new one you know, there are some nuances around what we call infrastructure risk, right? So we have to contemplate things like uh, exchange and custody risk. Um, and, you know, that's probably the only area where it requires a little bit of tweaking uh, that we probably didn't have to do in the old world. But otherwise, it's effectively the same. And, you know, so what are we looking for there? Obviously, we're, we're focused on strategies that we feel like, um you know, it would be complementary to kind of what we're doing, you know, as a business and as a firm. And again, we're focused more on the trading and in our side of the equation. Uh, so that's that's the first part. And then obviously, you want to align yourself with uh, with practitioners and teams that you feel like can execute on those strategies. And to that end, you know, we—if I can admit a bias—we we probably do have a bias towards folks that actually come from the world of of traditional hedge funds or or asset management. Um, we like, I, mean, and I, I
0: think that, that, that makes sense, right? I mean, I, I think we saw in March, you know, this year, a bunch of, you know, and, and would love your perspective on this, but, but a bunch of crypto native funds blow up because of poor risk management and just that lack of experience as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so folks that have actually managed risk in the past, um, you know, obviously that's a good starting point for us, uh, and, um, also understand what it means to act as a fiduciary. Uh, and what it means to implement institutional control by way of policies and procedures in their, in their own back office and so forth. So, so those are things that we, uh, of course, try to solve for. Um, and then there's, there's sort of the, the softer side of things, the more qualitative, I suppose, which is um, we're really focused on folks that we believe can be good stewards of capital and kind of embrace the partnership mentality. Because at the end of this day, at the end of the day, rather, similar, the, I'll never forget one of the, one of my favorite meetings in my early days at Grosvenor was with a very large, famous um, hedge fund manager, um, based out your way, actually. And, and we'd asked him, you know, how we can do better. Are we asking the right questions? How does he think about us as an investor? And he told us, you know, you guys, Grosvenor, know us better than anyone else. Um, but at the end of the day, you still don't really know what we do right because on a day-to-day basis you're not you know sitting there on the trading desk watching everything that happens right and he says ultimately you simply trust me to manage your money right and this is very much it's it's and that always stuck with me and and this is a trust business and these things trade on two things which is trust and competence and so to the extent you can kind of solve for both of the both of those and we you know the trust element of course is earned over time as you get to know people but you also you get to see how they respond to certain requests, um, how proactive they are in their communication, how transparent they are with their own business. Um, of course, we we conduct, you know, your your, your usual reference checks uh, as well as as background checks um, and all that. But um, but that's that's a critical piece of this puzzle, especially in a place like this, right, um, where where the risk is probably heightened relative to what you see in, in the traditional hedge fund space. Those are. Those are the things that we're attempting to solve for and what we're looking at. Um, and you know, you mentioned uh, as well that there's a limited track record, um, which is totally true. And this is this is an area where I think I think we we really kind of can add the most value is uh, identifying folks that are early in their life cycle, where you don't have the obvious trade that people you know are want to do. Which is, you know, this here's another, you know, Goldman Prop Desk spinoff. Uh, they've got a, a track record that you can sort of verify within the Goldman complex. Uh, therefore, you know, it's a no-brainer to throw lots of money at them because you'll expect them to replicate that success on their own. Um, that was a very profitable trade for a lot of Goldman spinouts over the years in the traditional hedge fund space. And um, in this space, you don't have that luxury, right? You don't have that pedigree that is just blue chip across the board. You don't have that track record that you can underwrite. And so you need to, uh, you know, you need to do your own due diligence. You need to exercise your own judgment, right? And you're gonna have to, what we're trying to do is identify folks that are maybe, you know, when Paul Singer set up Elliott, he didn't have a track record, right? Uh, He was a real estate attorney. And, you know, he struck upon a convert ARB strategy that he thought was interesting. He cobbled together a million bucks of friends and family money and he set up Elliott, right? And now he's the most successful, one of the most successful hedge funds of all time. You know, Ken Griffin famously started Citadel trading converts out of his dorm room at Harvard. <laughs> so, um, you know, there a lot of these these hedge fund titans. You know, they they kind of started uh, really in similar ways to some of these guys. And and if we can be hopeful uh, and 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 rather ambitious, in the expectations is that maybe. You know, maybe the folks that we're speaking to are the future Elliots and, and citadels, right? Um, of the digital asset kind of hedge fund game.
0: And so when you actually make that determination that this is an interesting, you know, hedge fund that you want to take a position in, you know, how how does that actually come about? Do you do you do you plan on taking a small position initially and increasing it over size, over time? Sorry, you know, how do you how do you determine the scope or, or size of the investment? uh, you know, and in any individual fund, right? You know, what makes you decide to write a check for, you know, X amount of dollars or 4X that amount of dollars?
1: Yeah. So we, um, by the way, just to kind of finish a thought on the previous point, if you don't mind, um, for sure on the, on the lack of track record issue, you know, studies have shown, um, that prior track records, uh, have very little impact on go forward return expectations, right? So, Um, and David Swenson is, is famous himself for making comments along similar lines where some of his best investments were folks that had no track record, right. When they set up their firms. So, um, so that's just something I wanted to quickly touch upon in terms of sizing. You know, we, obviously we need to think about sizing in the context of, you know, our overall strategy allocations and kind of what we want to get to, how, you know, how we think about volatility associated with the underlying and, and how that fits in with the, the broader portfolio, we also need to think about liquidity, um, and you know that is, in many ways, more art than science. Uh, and I think, you know, some of the some of the early vintage crypto hedge funds, you know, did run into that kind of classic asset liability mismatch, right? Um, which I'm sure you saw, uh, uh, and and so. We spend a lot of time thinking about liquidity at our end uh, vis-a-vis the liquidity on offer of the underlying funds and making sure that one, the liquidity that they're offering matches the underlying, um, but also that it fits within the 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 context of our of our book and the liquidity that we're providing our investors. And so there's a lot of of things you take into account. Um, but uh, you know the the other challenge I think associated with sizing is, there are certain strategies within the portfolio that we would expect to exhibit a greater degree of, of volatility. Um, hopefully, that ball is more to the upside, which would allow that position to run a little bit and become outsized on a relative basis. Uh, so you probably start off with those positions, sizing them a bit smaller than what you would consider to be fully sized within the portfolio to allow yourself some room to grow in right to that full position. But, uh, but then, you know, there's other things that we need to take into account, which is, you know, our own flows, right? And um, hopefully, we'll be growing over time and, and taking in more capital and allocating that capital to our managers and helping to right-size the portfolio as a part of a standard rebalancing process. Um, and then also, hopefully, that the investable universe, from our perspective, will grow uh, over time and that our portfolio, which uh, will start out smaller... In terms of, of number of positions, uh, we would expect to grow over time and enable us to kind of scale uh, within the space. Hopefully, you know along the lines of investor appetite.
0: And another thing that that we've noticed is just the actual scale of certain strategies that funds can deploy. Right. You know, if you want to talk about quantitative strategies in crypto, right, you know, certainly if you're trading Bitcoin and, and ETH, you know, exclusively or maybe some of the, the larger cap coins, there, there's 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 some level of greater scale that you can reach. But if you're trying to deploy quantitative strategies to to smaller coins right there, you obviously have the the lo- lack of liquidity problem. Right. And so so when you're kind of looking into a fund and, and determining whether or not to make an investment, you know, are they giving you information? as it relates to kind of the scale of their strategies and how big they can go, do you have any concerns with, you know, any, any certain types of strategies and, and scale when making allocations?
1: Yeah. So, um, the capacity constraints are real. Um, uh, particularly as you, as you correctly point out on the trading side of the, of the spectrum. So, um, you know, the, so the ability to deploy large amounts of capital with some of these underlying managers on a standalone basis is is uh, you know it's it's difficult uh, and and this is another reason why we think the fund to fund approach can make some sense because th- you know our strategy and business is obviously inherently much more scalable than some of these underlying funds on a standalone basis but but obviously you know to the extent these funds themselves are constrained that will inform us at our own level, and obviously, we will be constrained to some degree as well um, and, and need to think about that. You know, We spend a lot of time, obviously, thinking about liquidity and capacity. One thing I would, I would point out is I've been pleasantly surprised at how disciplined these managers, for the most part, have been when it comes to capacity. Um, you know, We've seen folks say, look, we estimate capacity for our strategy is probably only 15 to 20 bucks. And when they hit that, they close. Um, and and I find that a bit refreshing, you know, coming from my old world where it's quite typical for folks to put a capacity target in the early days, and then next thing you know, they blow right through it um, because it's hard for them to turn down capital. You know, I've been I've been pretty impressed by some of the discipline that's been displayed by these funds, which I think is uh, which is you know a really uh, a welcome development in in, in my own mind. Um, you know, on the liquidity side, when we think about capacity, um, we have been pushing managers to maybe be a little bit more systematic in the way they think about liquidity. And you know one of the things, for example, is uh, you know, some of the folks that we're speaking with we're kind of pushing them to to provide as part of their regular transparency reporting things around a liquidity analysis, which not a lot of folks have done so far. But I think it can be quite helpful for investors like us to understand you know what that liquidity profile looks like um, at, at our you know we can aggregate those statistics at our level and kind of understand how things shake out. but it also helps inform the managers in terms of thinking about, okay, well, you know what is our capacity and how do we arrive at that number? And there's a way to sort of quantify it in a rather straightforward and systematic fashion um, as long as the quality of data is good, um, which you know folks like you I know are, are helping out along those lines. Then, you know, this is this is just another way that we feel like we're performing a little bit of a social good within the space is that we are, again, bringing that institutional best practice and sort of introducing ways for for managers to think about things like liquidity, which therefore informs their thinking around capacity.
0: And so you've obviously done a lot of due diligence on a number of cryptocurrency funds. What, if any, interesting trends are you starting to see?
1: You know what? What I what I think is is almost um, I don't know if inevitable is the right word, but you know, I think it was what, was it Einstein? Maybe it's a, a, a quote that isn't attributed correctly, but you know, he says something about necessary for the survival of the human race is an evolution to a vegetarian diet. I think necessary for the survival of crypto hedge funds is an evolution towards a multi strategy approach, and. You know, we've 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 sort of seen that with um, quite a number of, of these managers that I would consider to be you know among the more investable and and successful in the space is that evolution to a multi-strat approach. Um, and by the way, you've seen it with with Citadel and, and Elliot, right? Um, they all started off as convert guys. Um, you know, all the ex Bob Rubin guys that came off the risk arb desk at Goldman, they were all risk arb guys, and until eventually, you know, that trade kind of went away, and then they, they morphed into a multi-strat, you know, Citadel, Elliott or multi-strats, right? Um, I think, you know, we've seen some of the obvious ARB strategies where folks made a killing back in, in, in 2017 and, and uh, in those early days around uh, exchange ARB, right? Um, you know, there's still some opportunities there, but a lot of it's been ARBed away. And that happens, right? That's a natural progression of things. That's the evolution of the opportunity set that you would expect as this marketplace matures. Uh, and so and what do, what do managers do? They either kind of pack up and go home or they, they pivot and they adapt. And so that's another thing that we kind of look to solve for when we're conducting our own due diligence is you know, making sure, sure that the folks that we're aligned with you know, have enough tools in their toolbox to be able to kind of skate across what we would characterize as like you know, kind of the asset class spectrum and, and really adapt to, to a changing
0: market environment. So to that point, you know, one of the things that we've seen and you know, I guess you're hitting on this is, you know, somebody start as a, you know, a you know, a crypto hedge fund, right? you know, with with some mandate and then kind of move into also doing venture and you know, all these other sorts of things, right? I mean, you know, it's it seems like, you know, you look you look at the space, right? You look at some of the bigger, you know, funds and they're they're doing, you know, 15 other things. And so, you know, how do you kind of differentiate between a a venture fund and a hedge fund in crypto? And, you know, when is it, you know, get to a point where, you know, you know, certainly there's, there's some merit in being able to, to, you know, deploy multiple strategies, but when does that become too much and just not make sense anymore?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously strategy drift is, uh, is certainly a bad concept, you know, in the, in the traditional space, but I think it's, it's just easier for folks to be laser focused on a specific strategy in those more mature markets, right? Because they tend to be deeper and, uh, and it's just, it's, they're more mature and and you kind of, you need to be specialized to develop an edge, right? Um, in this space, you know, we, there's greater allowance for it in our minds because it's almost, it's almost necessary, uh, because these markets are just evolving and changing so quickly, you know, there's, there's some there's some wisdom in being open minded and flexible about capitalizing on on these new opportunities as they arise, so long as you feel like you're capable of of delivering for your investors, right? And you're obviously transparent with them and letting them know, look, these are this is a new strategy that we we've been testing that we want to employ um, within the portfolio. You know, I would say we probably do draw a line though. Um, when it comes to you know folks that maybe start off as a quant and then they decide, oh, we're gonna, you know, launch a VC product or maybe introduce less liquid positions within the portfolio. You know, that that to us would certainly qualify as I guess strategy drift um, in the sense that it's just the,
0: the it's also just completely different skill set.
1: Com- yeah, it's a totally different skill set, right? It's it's completely different. Um, the liquidity profile is different the return expectations, risk return are different, you know, that that would be, I think, a pretty dramatic about face that that we would, you know, probably want to spend some time talking about.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that that certainly makes makes sense. And so when when kind of looking at, you know, allocating to crypto, crypto, you know, funds of, of different kinds, what what risks, you know, are associated with investing in in funds and, and how does that differ depending on the type of fund that you're investing in?
1: So I guess the, the you know the the risks are um, the the risks are fairly consistent, right? From from strategy to strategy, um, and uh, you know the the you think about the areas where folks have maybe stubbed their toe. You know the two obvious ones are around that asset liability mismatch and, and a misunderstanding of liquidity, um, as well as maybe the the use of leverage, right? And and so those, you know, in, in terms of kind of forced errors, uh, those, are, those are, you know, any of the funds that we look at and, and the strategies they employ for the most part could be exposed uh, to that in some form or fashion. Now, the good news is we don't, we don't really have much of an appetite for leverage. Um, we think this space offers plenty of volatility on its own, uh, that you don't need leverage to sort of amplify some of those outcomes, and and we don't employ obviously any leverage at our own level, so that's a little bit less of a of a concern. You know, the liquidity issue is something where again we've we've talked about that's that's of critical importance, um, and it can change pretty dramatically. Um, some of these these things, as you know, are pretty thinly traded, um, even though Bitcoin itself is is plenty liquid. Um, it's still in the grand scheme is. Uh, relatively thinly traded. In fact, Stanley Druckenmiller just said <laughs> that's one of the things he thinks is, is is interesting about it. So I would say those are probably the two the two primary risks from a from an execution perspective that that we think about
0: and where where folks can you know things
1: can can really go wrong.
0: And so, have you seen crypto funds getting larger? I mean, from my perspective, it seems like. We 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 are bound to see some some level of consolidation, right? Where you know larger funds are you know you know starting to kind of emerge, and, and certain funds are outperforming and attracting more capital. Is that thing that that you're seeing? Are you seeing specific you know funds you know outperforming others? I mean you know as an example, in 2019, we we saw you know a big big outperformance from the quantitative versus the fundamental side, which just makes sense because everything went down. Yeah. Um. And, you know, and yeah, I'll let you t- take that and then I have a follow up as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we uh, obviously we are seeing some degree of dispersion um, within the, the underlying strategies as one would expect in a market like this. Um, and, you know, in terms of, of folks getting bigger, you know, we, we are seeing some growth for sure um, uh, among the underlying managers. But, you know, the growth has not been meteoric. Uh, you know, it's been kind of slowly, slowly wins the race. And I, I think the reason for that is, um, you know, folks still are kind of figuring out what the best way to access this space looks like. Right. And, um, you know, obviously if you, if you take a a step back and you think about it from an allocator perspective, you know, here's this, here's this interesting new asset class, this thing called Bitcoin. Um, I'm reading about how it's, it's, you know, Bitcoin to the moon and, um, it seems to be, you know, kind of interesting from an asymmetric, uh, risk return perspective. And, you know, so the question is, okay, well, do I go for that sort of flat pricing approach where I just get that directional exposure by opening up an account on Coinbase? Um, or do I go the active management route? And I think, you know, most of the engagement thus far on the active side, as as you've seen and uh, and has been written about, has been on the on on kind of the VC side of the equation, right? So if I think it's easier for an institutional allocator to kind of sit back and say, well, you know, I'm gonna treat this as an innovative new technology, right? And and where does that go in my bucket? Well, it goes it goes in the VC bucket, right? Um, and that's been sort of a, a pretty easy circle for them to square and and that makes sense and it's something where they they're willing to carve off a little bit putting in that VC bucket and check back in in 10 years to kind of see how it turned out and i don't think an, uh, enough people have really thought about you know the the other opportunities on offer on the liquid side of the spectrum right and when it comes to active management and there just hasn't been as much focus and much voice kind of put to that, which is one of the things that we're attempting to rectify with our, you know, our own kind of outreach. And, you know, we have thought pieces as well that we put out on this very topic and just kind of making the case that, look, you're lost in the midst of all this noise. You know, Bitcoin to the moon, what have you, Bitcoin falls off a cliff, whatever it is, you know, there's there's opportunity on offer in the here and now. And the volatility used to be a good thing for traditional hedge funds. And guess what? It still is a good thing. And this is one of the most volatile asset classes on the planet. And so getting people to focus on that and realize that there's some pretty extraordinary risk return on offer in this space, um, I think that's been the challenge. And that's why you've just seen there has been growth for sure. But uh, again, it hasn't been dramatic,
0: um, at least not yet. And so when, when allocating just, you know, I guess a really quick, you know, question you kind of you know, hit on this, Are are you interested in, in, in allocating to funds that are invest investing in, in, you know, non-liquid tokens, like actually taking equity stakes in, in just, you know, market participants, you know, like picks and shovels businesses or anything else, or is it mostly just liquid tokens?
1: No, it's definitely mostly liquid tokens. Um, we don't, uh, we don't have much much appetite for the less liquid approaches um, right now. Um, that's not to say that they don't make sense; they certainly do for for plenty of investors. I think for us, we we just think the the best potential for risk return happens to be the most liquid. Um, so we tend to focus on on really. I mean, if you do a look through exposure uh, at any given time, it would be ninety nine percent the top ten coins, and even with that, it's probably mostly the top five.
0: And so, you know, you know, are you seeing more traditional funds launch cryptocurrency initiatives? And do you think you'd have a higher propensity, you know, for example, if, you know, Fidelity, for example, launches some sort of, you know, Bitcoin alpha fund or something, you know, to, to invest in in that versus, you know, more crypto native funds?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I actually um, haven't really given that much thought. We, we would certainly be open to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we 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 try to be open minded to to kind of you know all developments and strategies that that kind of fit our criteria. So yeah, you know if if Fidelity or or or, or Citadel or what have you kind of introduced a, a standalone product that was you know implementing strategies that we felt like were interesting, then we would certainly take a look. I, I um we haven't seen much of that. Um you know there are a few shops that are I suppose more traditional in orientation. They have a their main kind of primary business uh, and they've started doing things a little bit more crypto focused within their main funds. And then they may kind of carve out those strategies on a standalone basis. Uh, so we have seen a few folks do that, um, but it, you know it hasn't been anything dramatic yet tonight. And I'm not sure that'll happen anytime soon, frankly, mostly because the space is still relatively small. And I think for at least for the, for the household names to kind of engage here, you, you just need these markets to be deeper um, than they currently are.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of them are, are, have been playing, a lot of the Chicago shops, right, have been in the space for a, a while very quietly. Yeah. You know, it, it may not be at any sort of scale whatsoever, but I mean, they, they, you know, there are plenty of traditional quant funds that have been trading crypto for five years, right? But but it's, you know, probably just, you know, or, or it's just Bitcoin, you know, ARB and, and you know, market making strategies, right? Yeah. And different things, right? It's not. It's not scaled yet, but I mean, it certainly will be interesting to see how that changes, because I'm sure it, it will. But but just like, you know, when CME launched Bitcoin options in 2017 and everybody said the institutions are coming, it takes time. We still need more liquidity. I mean, you know, we're seeing now backed is now trading some size. Um, you know, but, but when they launched, it was like $10 million a day, right? And everybody was laughing. So, um, you know, I think they're up a thousand percent in terms of trading volume this year. And so the, 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 my next question, you know, kind of moving away from, from trading is kind of more of a personal question and something you alluded to earlier and something we ask all of our guests, which is, you know, and and you said, you don't think there are any fundamentals, but you know, how do you even begin to start thinking about fundamentals for crypto? And, and, you know, you know, how do you, how do you kind of, you know, take that question how you how you how you want
1: yeah you know look it's um to be honest I, I'm kind of I'm okay right with the lack of of fundamental value <laughs> in the space you know I, I know that it, it's it is it is what is holding I think the the space back in 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 some respect particularly as it relates to uh, more engagement from traditional institutional investors is the inability to kind of value some of these underlying tokens and, and, and frankly, understand them, which, which I must say, you know, I I don't have a lot of sympathy when folks say we don't invest in things we don't understand. Um, because first of all, you can take some time to understand it. And secondly, there's plenty of stuff in your portfolio that I suspect you don't understand (laughs) already. Um, but, but that being said, I think, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the attempts thus far to arrive at some, uh, you know, some methodology, for f- how to fundamentally value these things, I don't think any of it's ir- quite there yet. I don't think there's been a um, sort of a consensus, sort of adoption of of any of the thinking uh, and methodologies on offer so far. But I, I applaud the the initiative, is in the effort, and I and I must say, you know, the traditional valuation metrics that we have in in the equity world, for example, you know, they haven't always been around, right? Um, and you know, things like PE ratios and so forth, you know, th- these are in the grand scheme of of the history of you know, equities um, as corporate securities, you know, these valuation metrics came rather late in the game, right? So I think, you know, in some ways, crypto is a little bit ahead of the curve relative to their more mature and established counterparts uh, when it comes to trying to, to to think about these things. But, you know, all that's to say is I'm OK with the lack of, of fundamental valuation metrics. And and by the way, there are folks that I think are, uh, again, as I mentioned, you know, some of these fundamental strategies we're seeing um, actually produce some pretty interesting results that are not entirely explained by beta, right? Um, and I think that's a promising development. So we're, we're certainly open-minded to it, and we're hopeful that that will continue to
0: improve over time. But for now, we're, we're
1: kind of, we're fine with the way things are.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I think some of the interesting things, you know, as it relates to fundamental, but but I think it's also, you know, a, a mix of fundamental and trading, some of the, the more interesting funds that we're seeing, right, where they're maybe, you know, looking for certain fundamentals, but more as indicators for trading, right, you know, you know, mainnet announcements, for example, you know, as being a good, you know, indicator of, of an opportunity, right, in, in different things like that. And, and you know, we've seen a bunch, you know, I don't want to call out specific names, but but a bunch of funds have done very, very well this year um, that, that are more fundamental driven, you know, especially guys that had a DeFi thesis and whether or not that's luck is a different story. Right. But, um, you know, yeah, certainly interesting. And so, you know, on a personal note, are you investing in this space? Are you, uh, you know, are there specific projects that you're allocating to? Is it just Bitcoin?
1: Uh, me in terms
0: of PA, um, in terms of your personal account. Yep.
1: Yeah, no, my, uh, my, my money is all going into the fund. Uh, so um, we, uh, have a rather strict culture of compliance, uh, here at DALFA. Uh, so any, any, uh, trading activity that, um, uh, that I would be contemplating at all within digital assets will be solely expressed through the fund itself.
0: And so how do you think about regulatory risk as it relates to cryptocurrency? Is that, is that a concern that you have is in, has that changed over time?
1: Yeah, look, it's, um, it's, it's, it's certainly a potential concern. I think it's it has changed, and I think it's changed probably for the better. Um, it feels to me there there's there's been this steady drumbeat of greater kind of headline sort of quasi institutional adoption, right? So the more you see the fidelities of the world getting involved, the more you see folks like Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller and uh, even BlackRock today um, you know made a comment along the lines of of Bitcoin overtaking gold as a store of value. I think I think the more you see that, the obviously the less likely it is that you'll see some sort of draconian development on the regulatory side. Now, there does remain sort of the existential risk around you know governments deciding that Bitcoin represents in some form a threat, right to their their kind of fiat uh, regime. Uh, I think we're a long ways away from that, but I I do I do sympathize with that view. I think Ray Dalio, you know, recently sort of touched upon it as being something that um, that he perceives to be a real risk to Bitcoin in the long term. And I think you know that is potentially possible, uh, and I do sympathize a little bit with that viewpoint. Um, but it, in, in my in my mind, and again, this is just my own personal view, certainly not a house view at, at Dalpha because we don't really take house views like that. But for me, right now, the primary use case for Bitcoin is speculation. Um, I think the long-term use case and you're seeing it emerge is as a store of value. And as a store of value uh, in and of itself is maybe less of a concern for uh, the fiat governments of the world. Um, But the more you kind of try to push the sort of the, the payment rails and so forth, that exists outside of the system, you know, that's where things might get a little bit scary down the road, but I think we're again, a long ways away from that.
0: And so what has you most excited about the crypto space right now?
1: You know, I, I love the maturation that we're seeing within the space. I love the infrastructure build out. Um, I love, uh, and I love the attention that it's getting from, from real investors. You know, uh, again, I mentioned Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller and you know, a bull market always helps. Uh, I think now crypto is back in the sort of front of mind for a lot of uh, talking heads on CNBC and investors otherwise. And I think that's great. Um, I think it is uh, it is a reminder that this is a space that exhibits some pretty interesting characteristics vis-a-vis what people are doing elsewhere in their portfolios. And frankly, yeah, you know, we're in a world right now where, again, we've talked about the dwindling of supply of alpha in, in traditional, kind of alternative vehicles. And, you know, we've seen kind of <laughs> in some ways the death of the 6040 portfolio. And I think the 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 need to adapt in this in this marketplace with kind of rates where they are and where they're likely to stay, I think it's um, you know, the need to kind of embrace a little bit more of an exploratory mindset is is probably never been stronger. And it happens to coincide at a point in time when, you know, Crypto is going through another one of these cycles, and we're also seeing the emergence of, you know, you mentioned earlier things like DeFi, um, which is kind of speaking to new types of, of use cases within this space uh, beyond just the typical kind of, you know, Bitcoin narrative that people latch onto, which I think is also pretty interesting.
0: And so a final question, which was put together, uh, by uh, a friend of both of ours, Ryan Gorman, which is that we know you're a f- huge football. I would have written soccer. So, uh, a huge, <laughs> a huge football fan, uh, and have been to, uh, multiple world cups and premier league matches. So if you could play alongside any, uh, current or, f- or former player, who would that be and why? And then for our American friends, uh, if you could play alongside any American athlete, you know, probably non-soccer because, you know, most people aren't going to get the reference, you know, who would you play alongside?
1: <laughs> ah, uh, um, well, uh, for the, on the proper football side, uh, the answer for me is easy. It's Zinedine Zidane. Um, you want to uh, get headbutted? butted? Yeah. <laughs> my I only memory that- yeah, I think I, you know, he's he's the best player I've ever seen. I mean, obviously, Messi and Ronaldo are phenomenal, but yeah, I, I grew up playing um, center mid, and you know, just watching Zidane and his his just control and his vision. Uh, he was just such a, a phenomenal, a phenomenal playmaker and, and kind of field general. Um, I, I actually had the the pleasure of meeting him once. I got to meet the whole Real Madrid team back in the days when they were the Galacticos. Um, so I got to meet Beckham and all those guys. And so I met Zidane and what really stood out to me was the guy is massive. You know, he's like, he's like, he's like six, four, you know, super broad shoulders. And so you could, you could fully appreciate up close, like why he was so good at possession because he could just use his body so well, um, to kind of, you know, fend people off. Uh, so Zidane is certainly my favorite footballer of, of all time. American athletes. That's, that's kind of interesting. Um, ah, geez, I don't don't know who, uh, who that could be. Um, you know, I've had a, I've always had a soft spot for the, the multi-sport guys, you know, so Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders, um, the ability for those guys to kind of, yeah, (laughs) the ability for those guys to sort of excel at two sports professionally was, was pretty phenomenal. Um, and, uh, so I guess just to witness that up close, that would have been that would have been probably a, a sight to see.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Matt. And can you just let everybody know where they can find you online?
1: Yeah, sure. So we're um, uh, you can find us. We're at DALPHA.capital. Uh, that's D-A-L-P-H-A. Um, so kind of digital alpha. and, and uh, So that's uh, that's our website. And you can you can kind of, you know, see the team and bios there. We've also got, um, links to some of the thought pieces that we've put out. Um, we also obviously have a medium page for that. And then I'm on Twitter, um, edification. My, my nickname is Eddie. Uh, my friends call me Eddie. So it's eddy a little fun play on words. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that's, uh, that's us. Thanks so much for, for having me. Uh, really enjoy the conversation.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Ben.